Hi, I'm Joshua. Hi, I'm Talia. And welcome to our podcast, The Uncommon Census, where we reflect on the nature of knowledge and how we know what we claim to know. In this episode, we'll talk about philosophy, which sounds boring and fancy, but we'll try to make it more relatable to our daily lives. We'll, um, we'll try to look deeper onto the concept of reality, especially the different theories related to them and their relationship with our minds and knowledge. In this episode, we'll talk about um, mainly five different kinds of reality, namely common sense realism, scientific realism, phenomenalism, idealism, and ontological realism. We'll go into each of them and try to look at some examples of how it relates our daily lives. This episode will be a continuation of the last episodes, which has introduced us to what ultimate reality is. So if you haven't checked it out, you should go look into it and the links in the descriptions below. So theories of realism can change how we see the world and how we think the world operates. And it is a major topic in philosophy. To demonstrate this, I will be using examples of a table and how it is interpreted across different reality. Firstly, we'll look into common sense realism, which is the a reality based on the assumption that reality is what we see as it is. It relies on common sense, which is what seems logical to you. In other words, it is based on intuition, aka your gut feeling, and what you feel is the reality. Um, firstly, it states that reality is independent of observation. So no matter if you are here or not, reality stays the same. In short, your observation does not change the nature of the reality, and reality does not change when you observe them. Using the example of the table, if a person believes in common sense realism, he would describe the physical appearance of the table, like what the material um, the table is made of, the color of the table, and the structures and its shape or form. Some advantages of this, this mode of realism is self-evident, as it is simple and easy to understand, and less likely to lead to confusion or a feeling of loss. Um, this um, mode of reality is very easy for people to interpret, as it is basically what people see or feel. Hence, it, is, it makes it easier for people to understand. Another advantage of this mode of realism is that it is very hard to argue with, and it's very easy to prove, as it, may, it mainly um, relies on empirical realism and what people uh, feel or what people see. Therefore, uh, it provides a very strong argument as to why people should believe in common sense realism. Some advantage of common realism is that it fails to account for illusions or the impairment of senses. As we have learned in the um, last couple of episodes, our senses are really fallible and vulnerable to external changes. And uh, in this reality, reality is simply based on of our um, empirical observations and senses. Therefore, um, this could result in a false perception of reality. And we'll explore more on this when we discuss the fallibility of memories and the power of emo emotions in the ways of knowing, as these factors all have a powerful influence of how we perceive our surrounding world. Um, secondly, um, this uh, mode of reality does not account for things we do not sense or do not know. So if there's something that we cannot see or we cannot sense, does that mean it does not exist? Um, common sense realism disputes the existence of fundamental and natural phenomena such as gravity, oxygen, or if you know in physics, dark matter. In common sense realism, it states that only the things that you can see or the things that you can sense are the things that um, actually exist. So um, if we talk about uh, so if we uh, apply this theory onto um, other natural phenomena, it, it's very natural for common sense real uh, people who believe in common sense realism to arrive at the uh, conclusion that these things does not exist, which we know isn't the case based on scientific theories and other ways of proving. So Talia, is there any examples of you using common um, realism in your daily life that, um, as we have seen, it's not a perfect um, mode of reality, but is there examples of you using it? And to what extent do you believe in common sense realism? Um, I think that we are using common sense realism. All of us are using it every single day in our daily lives because it's really just relying on our common sense. And you always hear people say, just use your common sense and think about this. And also, um, I, I think it's very interesting that you think common sense is based on intuition and gut feeling because I actually never thought about it that way because, yeah, it just seems like 
this seems to be a logical thing because this is what I saw, this is what I've heard, and hence this becomes my reality. Um, and yeah, I do think that in a large extent, this is based on our like our own gut feelings of what we perceive the reality to be by relying on all of these five senses. So regarding to the question of how like my examples of using any common sense, I think whenever I'm trusting what I see, trusting what I hear, trusting my five senses, I think that is when I'm using my common sense to see the reality. Ah, yeah, that, that's very true. I mean, from a day-to-day basis, we do use our senses a lot and we do trust our gut feeling a lot in all the decisions we do, be it um, conscious or subconscious. Um, also, um, just a follow-up question. To what extent do you think um, common sense realism is rooted in other realisms? Like, for example, like um, scientific realism, as we'll, we'll go into later. So basically, reality based on scientific theories or um, other, other kinds of um, theories about um, what constructs our reality. Yeah, I definitely think common sense realism is founded on scientific realism and also phenomenalism, which we'll talk about later, which is some a real reality that we have from our experiences. Um, because I think we learn from our experiences and all of these senses, all of these information that we derive from, you know, our five senses are based on our past experiences. And in terms of like, you know, scientific realism, I think it's very similar because it all kind of deals with reality and, you know, having this idea that reality is independent of the observer, that it is the fact, this is what it is. In that sense, I think both of them uses a very similar thinking method or logical thought situation. Um, I think common sense realism is the most different from idealism, which I'm pretty sure we already talked about it further because uh, when I first heard about idealism, I think it's just what the hell is this thing? What the hell is this theory that reality only exists in our minds? But then the more I think about it, the more I kind of really think that's true. And I, I think it's really fun um, to, you know, look into different theories of reality and seeing how we perceive the world and our reality. So yeah, to just kind of wrap up my, my answer to your question, I would say common sense realism is more or less very similar to scientific realism because of the same thought method as well as phenomenalism because all of us, like all our five senses, we learn how to process information from them because we got the experiences. Yeah. Exactly. As we can see, these realisms are interact with each other and none of them exist independently. So now we can move on to, I think, scientific realism, which is um, the reality, um, which is a reality that exists independent of an observer, but very different from what we perceive. So um, it is one of the most commonly accepted type of realism. So it's mainly what we learn at school, be it in biology class, chemistry class, or physics. And it is one of the um, realisms that most of our textbooks or literary, literary theories are based on. So um, it is it is a kind of realism that relies on scientific proofs. So where its validity is dependent on how data could be reproduced. So for example, um, this type of um, realism relies on peer reviews in scientific community to reach a consensus of which we can all commonly agree on what reality is. Um, in this mode of realism, the best theories and models are derived from observable and unobservable aspects of the world as described by science. So as we see observable aspects, so in science, we mostly relies on empirical observation in order to prove that certain theories works or that certain, certain substances exist. And on the other hand, it also relies on unobservable aspects. So now we have a lot of different theories, as we've mentioned before, about um, dark matter or dark energy, gra gravity. So these are things that um, makes it very hard to, um, to, to arrive at the empirical um, conclusion. But it is generally accepted in the scientific community that it exists based on um, some calculations and theories by scientists. So going back to the example of a table, if we accept um, scientific realism, we will say that the table is made of atoms of elements 
of the periodic table. We'll say that it is 99% vacant due to the structure of an atom cloud and is consistently vibrating at a certain frequency and direction. So as we can see, this is different from common sense realism because um, when we touch a table, we do not feel that it is empty or that it was vibrating. But according to scientific knowledge, we're told that um, a table is made of matters and atoms, which um, are mainly hollow and also vibrating in nature. So we see there's a disparity between what we can sense and what reality is as explained by scientific realism. As we can see, scientific realism explains the limitation of our senses, however counterintuitive it may be. So some advantages of scientific realism is that it's a seat where common sense realism has failed, where it offers a plausible explanation to how illusions work and what we see and feel may not be the whole truth. Um, as, we can, as mentioned by the example above, we can see that um, scientific realism could explain some theories or some um, limitations to um, common sense realism as explained by the um, certain empirical conclusions and its uh, limitations. Uh, a second um, advantage of common sense realism is that it is comfortable with uncertainty. So in this scientific community, there is no such thing as hard evidence. In other words, everything is subjected to change. So as technology advances and we have better means to understand what the world around us, we develop newer theories that at time contradict and disprove older one. This is what we call a paradigm shift, where there is a shift in how the general society thinks and does things. Um, this, from this, we can derive certain, uh, we can look at certain examples. So one example is the atomic theory, where there's we can see a huge disparity between how an atom is perceived between time when the idea of an atom was first conceived, which is um, which is from the Greek um, philosopher and Democritus in the fifth century, and how we currently perceive atoms, which is from Erwin Strotinger in 1926. Um, another example is the geocentrism, which is a model that dictates the whole universe revolves around the world, which holds sway amongst uh, ancient Greek ancient Roman and medieval philosophers. But as time goes by from the late 16th century onwards, it was gradually superseded by the heliocentric model of Copernicus, um, uh, uh, Galileo and um, Kepler, which states that the, um, instead of the universe revolving around the earth, the earth revolves around um, universal entity, which is the sun. So as we can see from these examples, um, older theories kept getting um, disproven or rejected by newer ones. And hence, um, in scientific realism, the idea of reality is constantly changing. Therefore, um, and it has advantage of not being limited by certain thinkings or certain um, prevailing philosophies in a time period, being able to um, change according to newer consensus of what reality is. Um, of course, there are also a lot of disadvantages with scientific realism. Uh, uh, for, on one hand, it is too th uh, theoretical because um, certain theories in, si in science may be hard to visualize or comprehend. Um, come from a personal experience, and one of a theory that I find hard to understand is the idea that um, is the idea of um, dimensions and how, uh, in certain dimensions, time is basically. Um, so it's basically something that you can travel in and out of and how in certain um, dimensions um, there are uh, space and time could somehow be in this, uh, be as the same entity and for me I think it's very hard um, theory to grasp because um, I find it hard to think outside the um, real reality which is um, the third dimension that we live in today so um, for me um, this is a theory that I find hard to understand and and therefore, it forms one of the disadvantages of um, scientific realism because, um, I mean, for people who has not uh, who does not have a certain scientific background or foundations in, in science, um, it may be hard for them to understand what reality is. Secondly, um, scientific reality ultimately relies on empirical observation, which begs the question: Does something not exist if we cannot sense or even comprehend what it is. For example, the existence of a deity. So um, um, as we'll explain later, um, scientific realism strongly disputes the um, idea there is a all-powerful entity that controls our daily lives because um, it claims that there is a lack of evidence of um, proving its existence. But um, 
I also asked the question, uh, just because there's something that we cannot sense or um, that we cannot um, prove through scientific theories, does it mean it doesn't exist? It certainly leaves a room for um, thinking and also um, leaves this kind of blank space that um, we can explore later when we um, explore different types of um, other realities. Thirdly, it has um, it leaves a huge space for uncertainty as um, newer ideas can easily disprove older ones. Therefore, it showcases the fickle and volatile nature of scientific reality as um, this entire reality is not solid and could change as always. Therefore, it does not really um, provide a very convincing um, argument at the time argument for what reality is, as we can always argue that as um, time goes by, um, newer paradigms will appear, and therefore dis uh, disputing what our um, theory of reality is at the moment. So, um, Natalia, I want to ask you a question. To what extent do you think we can trust science in our modern secular society, given um, how much trust we currently already invest in it? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, that's a good point. We're we have already invested in so much trust in science. And I think there is definitely a reason why we do so, that this um, field is like one of the most powerful fields in our modern society. Um, I, I think throughout history is kind of like we have science, we prove it and then it stays in the academia. And then at times goes on, it goes to our daily lives and it being applied in our daily lives. And then it, as we can see, it greatly benefits our world and it has created so many cool things in our world and has definitely improved our lives because of the fact that we are, you know, doing science. And I think it's super fascinating that you mentioned about the uncertainty nature in science because like you always see these people like we trust in science what you're saying is illogical and not right is proven to be wrong or like it's there's no actual solid proof about this but then as you can see like science has been moving and has been changing for the past like forever so like people who believe that science are so solid that it is the only thing that is correct like if you just look at the history of science development, like you can see how it has been moving forward and then previous theories has been disproved and there's a new one. And of course you need the older theories in order to um, build on this new theory, which leads to like a paradigm shift. But I think those who believe that science is stationary and there's only one right or wrong is just, just, Honestly, have a look at science history, have a look at how far we've come. And then you'll realize that, yeah, it is definitely a very volatile field and is forever changing. And I think that's like a really good thing. Like it's, it's not 100% right or 100%, you know, wrong. There's definitely rooms for you to um, develop and to discover new things. I think as opposed to, you know, a lot of people think that math and science are very rigid fields, I guess, especially math, like there is a right and there is a wrong. However, like, as you can see, if we go to a further uh, up the ladder of like the, you know, the academic field, like you'll see that it's, it can be really fun. And there's multiple ways for you to do one single uh, problem. And yeah, there's still quite a lot of interesting things that I think we can still discover. So I will say that science, we trust it a lot in our society. And I'm pretty sure, and there is a reason why we do that because it has brought us so much good things. Um, however, I think we should definitely keep an open mind even within the scientific field that what we're learning right now might not be the absolute truth. And it should keep going. We should keep evolving. We should keep building up new theories from our existing ones. And I think that is what science is about. You know, it's not supposed to be very rigid and boring. Yeah, definitely. As mentioned before, the uncertainty and the kind of volatile nature of science could both be an advantage and disadvantage in the field. And when talking about uncertainty in science, it reminds me of a experiment called the so-called affair. I think you have also mm. heard of as taught in our class. So it is basically a, a experiment done by Alan Sokol, a professor in New York University. And he tries to test the academia's intelligence 
intellectual rigor by submitting some fake journals and trying to see whether those journals will get redacted by um, the corresponding um, publishing journals. And what he had found out that um, through um, really meticulous fabrication of data and also um, using really uh, a really specialized jargon, he was able to fool the uh, peer reviewers and hence having his fake uh, article published in the um, scientific journal. And, and the reason why I bring this case study out is that I think it's, it showcases perfectly of how um, science is not always reliable as uh, there are hopes, there are human errors. And also, um, as we have talked about, there's a very fickle nature about it. So um, as we can see, um, this also reveals kind of shortcoming of believing in scientific realism as um, there is always room to argue. There is always, always be a newer version of what our reality is and to, kind of belief in this kind of reality makes what we feel and what we experience um, rather volatile and unstable. But um, mm -hmm. on another hand, it can also be argued that, um, as you mentioned, um, this is an advantage because the ability to be able to constantly upgrade and to um, change our sense of reality can allow us to always try to strive for a more accurate or a better depiction of what our, uh, what our reality is and the truths um, surrounding our existence. So, um, yeah, as uh, in conclusion, as we have um, talked about, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, scientific reality, especially the uh, uncertain nature, could both act as an advantage and disadvantage. So I think now we can move on to phenomenalism, which is, as you will see later, also related to scientific realism. So in phenomenalism, it states that we will never truly know reality beyond our understanding, and that our understanding is based on our own experiences. Therefore, we can conclude that we cannot comment on reality outside of our own experience, where reality is defined as a permanent possibility of experiences. So um, as we can um, see in this, um, modality of reality, um, as experience are based ultimately on our own senses, they are our only tool of understanding reality. This is not hard to understand because our senses, as we have covered in previous episodes, are the only way we can contact the outside world. So be it using our eyes to see the world, using our ears to listen to the world, these are the only way we can kind of process and interpret ex external stimuli, at least in the most direct sense, because uh, as we've learned previously, we also have our sixth sense or um, other more unusual senses, but those are more um, indirect form of um, interpreting reality. And ultimately, our empirical experiences are rooted in our five senses and our most fundamental um, senses, so to speak. So um, in phenomenalism, it is the opposite of um, um, common sense reality. So um, we have empiricalism, which is based on the uh, basis of experience versus rationalism, which is on the basis of reflection, intuition, common sense, and mere thoughts. So we can see that in phenomenalism, it is based in um, empiricalistic um, conclusions where reality is reflected based on our own experiences as revealed by our senses. On the other hand, in common sense realism, it is rooted in rationalism, which is on the basis of um, reflecting around our world, thinking of what our reality is and also our gut feeling. So we see that these two are ultimately um, opposites um, despite them also sharing um, some, something common is that um, in both in phenomenalism and in common sense reality, we all, um, uh, they, they both have, uh, they both as rooted in uh, what we see. However, how we interpret those um, observations and th that reality differs greatly in terms of, on one hand, we experience it based on purely what we sense. On the other hand, after we sense this, we mix this with our own um with our own emotions, we mix it with our own uh, understanding of reality, uh, for example, gut feeling, in order to arrive at the conclusion. So, um, phenomenalism is um, something that scientific realism, uh, realism is based on. Uh, as we can see, these theories could be uh, intertwined with each other. Um, 
which um, as is also shown in previous um, demonstrations of realism, of which um, we can see that all these different theories are kind of related to each other one way or another. But I, I digress. Um, so going back to the example of the table, if we were to accept phenomenalism, we cannot know if the table is dirty or even in existence until we observe objects on it. For example, um, and using our physical senses, um, we could, we're able to see the table, therefore we're able to know that the table exists. However, if we remove our sight from the table, for example, if we turn our backs towards the table, we don't know um, whether it still, um, it still exists or that it changes or that it could change in its nature or reality. So um, an example of this would be, so for example, uh, let's say there are tables in a classroom. We know that the table exists based on um, common sense realism and that um, tables are not sentinel objects that can, uh, or animated objects that can walk by itself or, uh, cha or changes in its nature. However, using a phenomenalistic um, sense of reality, we could not know that, we could not be certain if these tables are able to change in their own nature or that, it, that they're able to move by themselves when we're not looking as, um, as in a state in this, uh, in this sense of reality that we can only uh, reality can never go beyond our own understanding and our own experiences. Uh, therefore, you can see that this um, sense of reality is not all-encompassing in the sense that it also has this limitation in, uh, in presenting our reality and the truth around us. Um, another example of this um, sense of reality is that um, it relates to how reality is formed by our uh, what we touch with our hands or what we... Um, as mentioned, what we see with our eyes. So um, as you can see that the sense of reality is um, very rooted in our sensual experiences and also uh, very dependent on um, the quality of how we sentence the objects. For example, if we touch with a hand that our table, uh, the table is hard, um, based on this um, sense of reality, it's undoubtedly that um, this table is very hard in nature as it is rooted in sensual experiences. So um, in terms of the advantages, like common sense realism, it is very intuitive and very easy to understand. Um, as demonstrated by Occam's Racer, which is a theory which dictates that um, and these simplest explanations often the right explanation. So um, it's very easy to understand as basically it is rooted in um, what we our senses tell us and, and hence it makes it very easy for us to trust as senses are uh, as we've mentioned before, the only way that we can really explain and tell um, the, the reality around us. However, in terms of disadvantages, it is very hard to determine based on a theory of um, universal dilution as proposed by René Descartes, which is um, a, a, per a person that is called the father of modern philosophy. Um, it, this is a theory that questions whether we can truly trust our senses in determining our reality, which is similar to what we have gone through in previous episodes when we talked about um, illusion the, and the vulnerability and fallibility of our senses. Um, and Descartes uh, explains this by using um, different scenarios of which he would think of this, uh, these different possibilities, for example, um, that he is dreaming or that um, reality is... Um, uh, that he's being deceived by an um, all-powerful entity, as we'll explore later. So um, the key idea is that um, uh, this philosopher is trying to um, come up with different scenarios of which um, our, uh, our senses could be fooled and hence um, the reality around us cannot be trusted. So um, this reveals the uh, very um, fundamental limitations to this sense of reality as um, it, it presents um, presents uh, there are, uh, re this reality as very um, fickle and very uh, volatile, as um, pre presented by our um, the limitations of our senses. So um, uh, we can go more onto this when we explore um, idealism, which is a which is the idea that um, reality is based purely on our Im imagination and that it is constructed mainly in our minds. So um, yeah. It is. <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> you believe in this sense of reality? Yeah, now I believe in this sense the most. <laughs> you can go um, on and explain it first. We can uh, discuss about it. Okay. Um, so um, in this sense of reality, um, 
um, and it's really based on Descartes' dualism, which seems like a very big and fancy word, but basically it is the theory of mind, which I think what TOK is mainly about is the theory proposed to on how um, we, we how knowledge is constructed and how we perceive um, truth and reality around us. So um, one of the most fundamental pillars of this um, theory is cognito ergo sum, which I think is more commonly known as I think, therefore I am, which is also a theory uh, proposed by Descartes, um, as we've mentioned, uh, the philosopher, as we've mentioned um, just now, in his uh, 1637 book, Discourse on the Method. So in this book, he tries to um, question if, um, he tries to question um, what is certain um, in our reality that we can really trust. Um, and the conclusion that he arrives is that the existence of our mind is the only uh, is the only certainty in our world. So how did he try to prove this? Um, initially, as a scientist, he tried to provide firm. Um, he tried to um, prove this by um, providing firm foundations for science and eliminating false beliefs. So in short, he tried to use scientific realism to prove uh, the idea of certainty. So he tried to see what is really um, what can really be really certain in science. So um, as we've mentioned before in scientific realism, um, certainty isn't really a thing because it can always change with time. And this is the same conclusion that um, Descartes has um, arrived on as he had found out that um, scientific realism is ultimately fickle. So with uh, given that this really fundamental aspect of his belief is disproven, he tries to look at other um, forms of reality that he, he thinks um, we can really believe in. And hence this um, eventually grew out into our modern understanding of um, philosophy. To do so, he relies on a method of doubt or Descartes' doubt, which is a way of seeking a certainty by systematically doubting everything. So um, basically this, um, uh, this method of trying to figure out what is certain um, to do so by trying to figure out what is uncertain in the first place. So he does so by trying looking through our empirical senses. So can we really trust what we see or what we hear to, um, to as we mentioned before, scientific theories? So how, to what extent can we really um, trust um, scientific theories? So um, let's look at how he really proves certainty through the method of doubt. So um, in the method of doubt, it relies on something called Descartes' doubt, which is about possibility of a thing existing or that a scenario happening uh, as, a, as opposed to ordinary doubt, which is about probability. So um, the probability of something happening or existing. So uh, this may sound very confusing, but let's look at some um, examples or uh, let's look at the, how the system works. So for example, let's try to use these um, different doubts to answer the question of whether the sun will come out tomorrow. And we use ordinary doubt, which is uh, which, basis, uh, which predicts reality based on um, the probability that it will come out. Uh, we, can, uh, we can probably say that the sun will come out tomorrow because there's a large probability it will based on former statistics and experiences. So um, I think up till now, the, uh, throughout history, the sun has come out like every single day. So based on these experience, we can arrive at the conclusion that the sun will come out tomorrow. However, if we use a Descartes um, approach to doubt, um, we would doubt that the sun would, would doubt that the sun will come out. So we're uncertain whether the sun will come out as um, this is not a given. In other words, there's still a possibility that for example, in a very um, imaginative scenario, it will just blow up and basically cause a perpetual nighttime. So in short, there is like no, there is a possibility that um, the sun would not come out no matter how improbable it is. So by using Descartes' doubt, Descartes is starting to examine and question everything in the scientific world and the reality around us, where he comes to the conclusion that in every scenario, be it a dream possibility or a um, evil genius, uh, which are scenarios that we'll explain later, uh, there's um, not one thing around us that um, Descartes that can be um, skeptical of, except the existence of the human mind. So he has um, arrived at the conclusion that um, because of how fallible our senses are, um, we, we cannot really trust um, our reality around us and everything um, that we believe in around us because of how fallible our senses are. So 
he arrives at the conclusion that the only thing that we can really trust is the existence of our human mind. Because in everything we do, we think, if you think about it. So, <laughs> no pun intended. So, um, in, uh, as we talk about like, philosophy or like even in academia or like the study that you do day to day at school, um, mm. we, we do go through a process of thinking and rationalizing our uh, like different information around us to to an extent this provides a infallible evidence for um our mind existing for because if our mind does not exist we will not be able to think so the action of thinking itself is enough to prove that the human mind is an actual entity that is, exists. Therefore, this serves as the single most convincing argument for idealism. As the mind is the only thing we can be certain of, it is also the only thing that we can trust, interpret, and explain the reality around us. So, um, Talia, uh, um, going back to your uh, reaction before, uh, I would like to ask, um, now that we have gone through um, idealism advantages what for you personally what is the most convincing argument that makes you really believe in this branch of um, philosophy <laughs> i i mean the more you think about it the more it makes sense right like everything it's just an idea it's, your mind is the only thing that you know actually exists because what if like the things we touch is just you know we, we just got the sense that we're touching something like the thing might not materialistically there but we just think of is materialistically there because we see it but you know we don't know like what we see if it's real or not it's just some signal sent to our brain and makes us interpret that this is real mm-hmm. i think we're definitely going to talk more about this in the next episode because um, i think there's so many literatures that you know delves into the idea of idealism. I think the most famous one being The Matrix. And mm. there's actually a lot more. And the, there's a very interesting short story, which we will you know, discuss in the next episode. Mm. And yeah, I mean, the more you think about it, the more you kind of question like your world, like whether it's real <laughs> or not. And even in you know, the last episode, we talked about the world as a simulation. I think that definitely discusses about idealism in a sense that nothing is real and yeah i think all of these like almost sci-fi style thoughts and ideas just makes me be very intrigued by the theory of idealism and i think it's um something that's like arguably uh the most convincing one to me it's the most crazy one but it's also somewhat the most convincing so yeah that's why I had this reaction like yes I think everything is just an idea though that is very true and I think you'll bring out one of a very key point of why we're even learning reality in the first place is how it relates to philosophy so um so philosophy, um, on the one hand, is the interpretation of like um, trying to understand truth in our world around us. But on the other hand, it's also a kind of outlook of life. So when people say, oh, that's my personal philosophy, that they talk about their personal outlook of life. And if we look at different types of reality, especially idealism, you will see that everything around us is fickle and everything is um, not eternal because um for example, when we die or our soul leaves our body, we'll basically stop thinking or we'll stop um, really be constructing our reality around us. So it really makes put in context of how you feel life. So some people, they um, they go to work, they, they for example, study really hard, they work really hard to um, earn these, for example, like more materialistic um, things um, or materialistic pleasure. But ultimately, if we look at like, um, idealism you can see that as you mentioned these things are not real or like just a figment of a socially constructed imagination so um you can really it can really change your outlook of life as um when we base on our, our understanding of these different sense of reality we'll start to construct our own um, way of thinking what life is about and how um and what we define as happiness and our goals uh, and the things that we want to achieve in our um, current lifetime. So um, uh, before we move on, just, a, just another question I want to ask. Um, so um, 
like going back to what you said as compared to um as you said idealism is a rather you know out there or like as some people say a more crazier version of um what we think reality is so uh, given this um you can see that it's a, it provides idealism is more philosophical and provides less solid evidence than let's say scientific realism and phenomenalism so um for you Talia what is the tipping point of what is the um, factor that really causes you to believe in idealism rather than these other um, modes, modes of um, reality that seems to provide more solid evidence? <laughs> because, I mean, the whole idea of idealism is kind of saying that the evidences that you see might not be actually real. <laughs> yeah. Right? So I think that's definitely the tipping point. Like all of these previous theories, especially scientific realism and common sense realism, like what you've said is kind of like based on, you know, reality is independent of the observer. We have like all of these, um, you know, evidences to prove something is rational um, as opposed to phenomenalism and idealism, which is more like it, it's in your mind. And also it's kind of like that tree thing, like does a tree still fall in the forest if it doesn't make a sound and no mm. one's there to hear it. I think if you're dealing with scientific realism and um, yeah, common sense realism, that you, you will say that, yeah, it did fall because the reality is independent of the observer. However, with idealism and phenomenalism, you will say that the tree probably didn't because no one is there to see it. And I mean, it's so hard for us like we will never be able to see the, the actual reality. Like we will never be able to see outside of the forest. Like we will all be there and not be able to hear the tree has fallen. Like, yeah, I, I just, in that sense, I think it, it's really easy to, you know, just think idealism makes, actually makes quite a lot of sense. Like, cause we'll never be able to observe the reality independently because we are, all living in our own minds. I think we talked about this theory of mind thing like in the previous episodes. And yeah, I think it's pretty much all of those things that we kind of discussed. There's so many evidence that comes to like idealism is one of the, I guess, most fun theories. Yeah, so as we can see that, um, <laughs> don't really believe um, um, everything <laughs> you see and believe, I think that's the, <laughs> really key idea of our podcast here is to try to think outside the box and certainly I think um, idealism is a very unique um, mode of um, reality as it is the only reality that can really transcend the or explain the limitations of our senses and construct a mm-hmm. kind of a theory of reality completely detached from um, our, our senses which as we can see is rather fallible. So um, I think we can now move on to um, the disadvantage of idealism. So you may think to yourself, so, oh, okay, um, you're saying that um, idealism is such a, um, such a seemingly a all-encompassing and perfect um, theory of reality. So why even bother learning other types of reality? But as we can see, um, actually, idealism is not a perfect um, theory of reality as it still has a lot of limitations. So um, firstly, as we've mentioned before, idealism lacks a very solid um, evidence as it basically disproves mm. all the empirical evidence we have in, in the current world. So it's very hard to actually provide um, solid proof for the existence of our reality constructed in our minds because um, the this kind of um, arrival at this um, mode of reality is mainly based on um, um, what we think and also like our a process of rationalization rather than empirical truths. Um, on the other hand, um, this um, idealism also uh, also has the limitations of a so-called dream possibility and evil genius. So, um, what are these? So that's. Um, I, I will try introducing this through, um, I'll ask certain questions to you, Talia, and to see, like, um, to see um, if you can um, generate an understanding based on these questions. So for a dream possibility, so for, for example, it, it presents a first question, Talia, to what extent do you think you are dreaming now? So like, as you can see from, like, from your eyes, from your, like, um, from your... <laughs> 
like from our senses, you can see that we're doing a podcast. You're sitting in your home, you're looking at your screen, and we're you know conversing about philosophy. But do you, to what extent do you think um, all of this is not true, and that in reality you're actually on your bed and you're imagining all of this around you? Yeah, that's possible. I just tend to not think about the world in that way. Because, I mean, it can be fun, like right, like if you're just a, a dream, someone's dream, and then you. So you don't have to take yourself that seriously. Just live life to the fullest. Just living your dream to the fullest, because. It's kind of like lucid dream. Like we can <laughs> control ourselves at least. Like, I don't know. I think, yeah, that is very interesting. And that's kind of like the simulation hypothesis world yeah. that we previously discussed about. So who knows? <laughs> Maybe we're all in a dream. Exactly. And um, as you've mentioned before, um, this is very related to the idea of like matrix type of like mm. reality of which... Um, if reality is constructed in our minds, um, there is no, um, you know, there's no telling of whether there could be like um, external influences that could construct a reality that we are not, uh, that we are completely um, unconscious of. So um, over the years, this has given rise to a lot of so-called like conspiracy theory. So the yeah. idea of that there is um, different timelines or that there are different um, versions of yourself throughout the entire universe and the idea that there's a multiverse. So at the same time, um, and like as of in uh, presently, at the same time, there are um, other versions of yourselves doing different types of things. So, um, so this is the first idea of the limitations to an idealism is that um, there's as if reality is really constructed in our minds, there is really no telling of and whether there's something could interfere with it, as um, our minds are as much as empirical senses are also very volatile and subjected to change. And the second idea is an evil genius, which is a similar idea. So, um, Talia, to what extent do you think there is a, for example, there's a, um, a devil or a very uh, evil deity that is um, controlling your mind and that it is creating this really false reality around you? And um, in reality, you're, as we mentioned before, in reality, you're not really doing a podcast, but perhaps doing something else, for example, slaving away in some sweatshops. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah, that, that idea is like quite similar to the Matrix again. Like, like they're just there to, the human energy are just there to feed to these like machines. Um, and yeah, like it was very interesting because like, what if, the deity is just a 10-year-old boy playing the sims and we are the sims yeah. and that 10 year old boy has nothing to do but to make make us suffer like, <laughs> that is also possible so i mean right now um my life has been okay <laughs> i'm grateful for everything that i got so <laughs> I hope there isn't an evil genius, you know, controlling me as their sim and making me suffer. <laughs> so, thank you for that but, old boy. <laughs> yeah, thank you. But yeah, I mean, under the theory of idealism, if our reality is, you know, just an idea and like nothing is real and there is possibly that there's an evil genius out there, then that can be scary for us. Yeah, definitely. Because... Um, the idea that someone, like we're not in control of our own fate is ultimately very mm. scary. So uh, as, um, as I will mention in later episodes, this also relates to the idea of free will, whether we are really in control of our own reality. So uh, just a little more elaboration on this. Um, under idealism, it states that um, we are in fact, um, you know, in we're in fact in control of um, our reality because you know reality is basically how we think it is and what we imagine it to be. However, um, uh, as we can see in these um, disadvantages, um, th this um, uh, this may not always be the case as there could always be external influences. There could also always be um, some other factors that ch um, changes our construction of reality. In short, um, even though we can be certain that our minds exist, there is no certainty in the idea that um, the nature of which our mind exists is um, 
and within our control are that uh, it is an accurate representation of truth and reality. So um, lastly, we'll go into, uh, we'll briefly go into um, um, a, re a religious reality, but we'll, we won't go into too much depth because um, we're going to cover that later in, uh, in later episodes when we also when we go through different ways of knowing and um, different um, areas of knowledge. So um, in short, in, uh, in re religion, reality is constructed and controlled by a deity. So it is defined by three characteristics. First it is omnip omnipotent, which describes um, the deity having an unlimited power and can do anything that one could ever imagine. Secondly, a deity must be omnip omnipres omnipresent, sorry, uh, where everything, um, where it is everywhere at any time. So um, it could be right next to you as well as it could be um, all the way across the world, for example, in America now. Um, thirdly, it is um, omniscient, which means that um, the deity must possess unlimited knowledge and knows everything at any given time. So um, in short, um, the deity will be able to um, will be able to predict the future, understand the present, as well as um, acknowledging the past. So um, what are the ways to prove this? So before I get into this, so Talia, how I'd like to know, um, I know this is a very contentious question, but as an atheist, do you think religion is an illogical explanation of reality in the sense that it is based more on personal experience than logic? Okay, so before I answer your question, <laughs> I'm going to make a comment on the fact that uh, the deity is like everywhere, anytime, and can be at any time this yeah. just makes me think it is like a fourth or fifth dimensional being anyway yeah. oh <laughs> but there, there could um, be like scientific explanations to yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, okay so actually when i was younger i went to church like every single sunday with my mom um in beijing and like yeah, I was just going there. And then I remember it was like a part of my life. But then mm. I think as I grow up, it has become less important. Um, I would say that I don't think religion is like, you know, illogical. Like, I think there is a reason why people believe in it and worship. I, I think, you know, nowadays in modern times, we think that may, is religion just somewhat redundant in, in the 21st century? Because I'm pretty sure like before religion was used as a tool to really kind of control people and like their actions, what they do. And honestly, I think that real, and then I, I guess a lot of people in 21st century kind of like just has this kind of repulsive idea against religion. Mm -hmm. I think, however, I don't think is the religion itself is bad, but it's what people make of it, you know, like how people interpret certain things written in the, um in, in, in like let's say in the bible and then they take that thing out of the context and then they just play as a god and like use it to like you know somewhat punish others and stuff like religion itself i think all of them across the world it itself it's good in nature it really wants us to become better human and really to thrive and to contribute to the society however being used by you know just very extreme individuals or even the government you know it can go really wrong and i think i think that is like the main point i want to make it's really not the religion itself that we should blame but really how people utilize it to turn against um other people so yeah i i would say that i don't think religion is an illogical explanation of reality i think there is a reason why a lot of people subscribe to it and it can definitely it definitely doesn't bring you that logical aspect, you know, of the world because we're living in the 21st century and there's a lot of explanations that we have, which, you, you know, is different from what the religion has said. But then I'm pretty sure on a spiritual level, it can provide you a lot. Yes, and it turns out there is a logical explanation to um, <laughs> religion as a um, mode of reality. So um, this is... Uh, the proof lies in a, a branch of thinking called teleological arguments or uh, for the existence of God or, 
and or the ontological argument for the existence of God. So, um, so um, first, let's go into teleological argument first, which talks about how um, the perfect balance and high complexity of our universe can only be explained by the existence of a great designer who is able to coordinate all this and control all this to make sure that everything is on track. So, um, as we get as we have learned in nature or learned in um, the um, the world around us, everything seems to be in perfect um, balance, right? So uh, we see um, life, um, death is replaced by life. Um, there is always um, there is always a kind of um, ongoing cycle of uh, processes in nature that allows it to possess a certain sense of continuity. And this branch of thinking argues that without a person controlling all this, it would be very hard to explain how everything is in perfect balance. Um, however, there is also a counter argument to this um, train of thought in which it talks about how nature could instead evolve by trial and error, such as the theory of survival uh, of the strongest or uh, the, uh, the natural selection evolution. So as we can see, um, some people would argue that um, instead of a um, all powerful deity, um, instead, the world is balanced and have all these processes by trial and error of which um, um, of which um, systems that are faulty systems or um, weaker beings will eventually be eliminated through time while stronger and more workable systems and beings, for example, like ecosystems or um, species is able to prevail and be able to um, survive in the test of time. And on the other hand, um, there is also the ontological argument, which is um, also a, a logical explanation to religion, which states that, uh, which is a system that uses a logical deduction to prove the existence of God. It is proposed by St. Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th century. And he, he uses um, six processes in order to, uh, six steps in order to prove the existence of God. So um, first of all, he defines God as a being that, which is, none greater than, uh, than can be imagined. So he defined God as a being that is the greatest thing that anyone can imagine. So um, what, what is true as we look at, uh, as we've known some characteristics of God before, which is um, it is omnipotent, it is omniscient, and it has all these different really great um, attributes of which um, it has not, there is no limitation to the power of God. Um, second of all, he defines God could also exist as an idea in the mind. So let's, he, he defined that, oh, if God is not a absolute deity, then God is uh, only exists as a kind of concept or a kind of um, imaginative um, idea that uh, exists in people's mind. So uh, to start off all, he talks about how um, a being that exists in the mind and in reality is greater than the being that exists only in the mind. So he talks about if a if God um, is able to exist both in the reality and in what we imagine, this is surely greater than um, God only existing in our mind. Because uh, of course, if God is actually um, present in reality, this would be a much more powerful and much more um, influential kind of entity than only God being an idea that can influence people's thoughts. So um, the fourth statement states that if God exists only in the mind, then we can imagine something greater than God. So um, this is, it seems to be a very contradictory statement as before we talked about um, God is a being that is none greater than can imagine. But if we can, if God only exists um, uh, it exists uh, as something in our mind. Uh, exists as something. It only exists as something in our mind. Then um, we can imagine something that is greater, which is God existing in reality and in our minds. So the fifth um, school of thought uh, step says that um, as we cannot imagine something that is greater than God, a being that is um, the greatest possible being by definition, God exists both in our mind and in reality. So it uses this kind of um, rather logical thinking and deriving that um, God must exist both in minds and, and in reality. Of course, um, a lot of people, um, religious people or believers would really argue against this, um, think, this sort of thinking because um, as we can see, the argument for God in here is more, as 
purely based on the definition of God and this kind of um, uh, this kind of um, uh, using logical deduction, but it does not really um, present God as a really solid idea or a solid entity that controls and creates our reality. Um, of course, we're gonna. This is just a very general overview of what um, um, reality is. If we um, look at it from a religious point of view, and we're gonna look more about this, I'll go more on more about this idea as we explore um, the re, uh, as we explore religion in later episodes. So um, yeah, this is uh, this is uh, this is the end of our podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and please keep an eye out for new episodes. And we'll see you next time on the Uncommon Census. Thank you. Oh, baby. Every morning.